0: Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and today's conversation focuses on The Economist's special report, The News Industry, Bulletins from the Future, available now at newsstands in this week's edition of The Newspaper. Our discussion couldn't be more timely, with this morning's breaking news that Rupert Murdoch has dropped News Corp's bid to gain control of Britain's Sky B Group. We'll be discussing this, as well as social media, the growth of newspaper readership in many parts of the world, and the increasingly partisanship of the news. I invite you to submit questions for our guest, Tom Standage, digital editor for The Economist, by using the chat feature on the bottom of your screen. And please remember to include your name and location so we can pinpoint our listeners from around the world. A special greetings to World Affairs Council members, subscribers to The Economist, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ audiocast archives available on both iTunes and the Council's website at dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ. During the program, you have the chance to win prizes courtesy of The Economist by being the first to correctly answer one of our IQ challenge questions using the online chat. So stay tuned for your opportunity to win. Tom Standage, the author of this week's special report, is the economist, digital editor, and an author of a number of books, including A History of the World in Six Classes, a New York Times bestseller, and An Edible History of Humanity. He studied engineering and computing at Oxford University and has written for publications including The Daily Telegraph, Guardian, Wired, and Prospect, taking a particular interest in the Internet's cultural and historical significance. In his non-economist life, if Such a Thing Exists?, Tom plays drums and video games and enjoys spending time and entertaining with his two young children. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. The title of your special report, Back to the Coffee House, suggests that both the gathering and consumption of news is becoming more participatory. Uh, Let's begin our conversation with you telling us about how you see the new ecosystem developing. Well, that's
1: uh, exactly the right word for it. It's very much an ecosystem now. Um, News is coming from uh, a far far greater number of of sources and organizations uh, than it was just a few years ago. And if you think about some of the uh, news organizations that are prominent now, like, say, WikiLeaks or even YouTube, um, because obviously you know, video on YouTube is now appearing in the news, or the Huffington Post. Uh, These did not exist um, just a few years ago, and it's amazing how they've been able to uh, emerge onto the scene this quickly. But, of course, the Internet lets you do that. If you want to launch a global news brand now, you can do so much more cheaply than you could even a decade ago when you had to do things like buy, you know, satellite um, broadcasting slots or build printing presses or whatever. So um, that's one of the ways in which uh, I think... Funnily enough, the Internet is, despite being a very modern technology, taking us back to the past um, and to the way the news looked before the 1830s. Um, and the reason the 1830s were important, it was, it was then that the Penny Press, the first real example of mass media, emerged uh, in America, and then it spread to other parts of the world as well. But um, the first newspaper uh, of that kind was the New York Sun, And uh, at the time of its launch in 1833, the most popular newspaper in America was called the Courier and Inquirer, and it was a a New York-based newspaper, and it sold 4,500 copies a day, uh, which is a very small number. I mean, there were about 220,000 people living in New York at the time, but um, that just gives you a a sense of how small and how local uh, news organizations were at the time. There were lots and lots of them, but they had a very limited reach. Um, And what the uh, New York Sun did was it had a steam press, and that meant that it could print tens of thousands of copies an hour. Um, And so it had quickly got tens of thousands of readers a day, and it was putting out multiple editions a day. Um, And it really changed the way that people related to news and thought about news. But it also changed the business model because um, at the time, newspapers in America typically cost six cents And uh, the New York Sun cost one cent, and the way it was able to have this much lower price was by attracting a larger audience, which then meant that advertisers would pay to advertise to that audience, and as a result, there was money to subsidize the cover price. And this was the new model that uh, newspapers and news organizations of other kinds that emerged subsequently uh, became very reliant on revenue from advertisers rather than from readers. Um, and uh, in America, in fact, um, in 2007, the average newspaper got 87% of its revenue from from advertising and 13% from circulation. And that's the highest figure anywhere in the world. Um, but anyway, that model came in and that whole sort of mass media idea of reach a big audience, uh, grab advertising, and then use that to subsidize uh, the, the cost so that you get an even bigger audience, um, that was very much a change from what had come before, and previously what happened was that news circulated in this very much more local way, um, and newspapers, if you look at newspapers before the 1830s, uh, they mostly consist of letters. Uh, here is a letter that, you know, this politician wrote to that politician, or here is a letter that somebody, um, you know, in another part of the country has written to us, and newspapers would copy uh, bits from other newspapers as well. Uh, it was rather like blogging, actually, in the sense that everything was sort of copied from somewhere else and then commented on, um, and and, uh, and this was a very different sort of way of, of gathering the news. Uh, there weren't full-time reporters, um, and uh, there weren't really, you know, the, the guy who ran, ran the printing press, who was usually the publisher, he might write the editorials as well. But um, it was it was a much uh, different system. Most of the people who were writing these letters were involved in the incidents that they were describing. They weren't professional journalists who were standing to one side and reporting what they could see. And so that's why I say that the um, the Internet has had the effect of, making the news more participatory, more social, more diverse, and more partisan, um, all of which are things that were characteristics of the, uh, of the news industry as it existed before the New York Sun showed up. So in that sense, we really are back to the, the era of the coffeehouse and the, the pamphleteering and the, uh, the very partisan press that, that have prevailed, uh, say, towards the end of the 18th century in America.
0: I noticed at the top of your remarks you mentioned WikiLeaks and Huffington Post, and you characterized both as news organizations. I'm not sure if everyone would agree with you. Um, do, do you feel strongly that they are news organizations? WikiLeaks is, is based on uh, acquiring materials from from sources. Huffington Post, many have said it's merely an aggregator of news.
1: Well, to be honest, um, newspapers have always done aggregation. Um, It's just they don't do it quite as nakedly as the Huffington Post does. So um, I I don't mean news organization – I don't think news organization is a – you know, it's just a generic term. It's an organisation that's part of the news ecosystem. I think now, and the interesting thing is that um, that used to just mean newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, um, and maybe you know wire services, specialist uh, information services like that. Um, but now it's a huge diversity of, of organisations getting involved. Um, individuals can be, in effect, their own news organisations now. When Lady Gaga tweets to however many million followers she has, you know, she's effectively got her own private newswire that she's running there, Uh, there's a whole load of, as I explained in my report, there's a whole load of uh, non-profits that are moving into this area now. Um, There have always been uh, a handful of non-profit investigative journalism outfits uh, in the U.S., but now we're getting sort of local non-profits. Uh, The one I uh, went to see was the Bay Citizen, but there are several of these uh, in, in large cities around the U.S. Um, so again, you know they 're not conventional news organizations, and then you have sort of strange new entrants like Wikileaks. Um, Google and Facebook are a big part of the uh, of the news system now. I mean uh, Facebook has been described as the largest news organization in history, and in a sense, it is although you have to redefine news i mean uh, when you log on to Facebook, you see something that says a news feed and um, that 's defining news to mean. Stuff your friends are doing, stuff your friends are sending to you, and, uh, and talking about. But you know, that's actually the way news was defined for for most of history. It was a it was what you chatted to your friends about. It, it wasn't coming from a centralised, uh, broadcast, unidirectional source. It was a two-way stream of information. Um, so I don't think it's uh, uh, misleading to refer to all of these. Uh, organizations as news organizations, and I think that just shows you how much more diverse uh, and how different the uh, the Internet is making our
0: ecosystem of news. Good. I, I want to get to some of our questions from our listeners and remind our listeners to go ahead and send questions in to us, and we'll get to just as many as we can. Uh, before we delve more deeply into social media, let's go right to what's happening uh, with Robert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch, yes. Rupert, um, Yes, yeah,
1: well, it's it's uh, it's a very fast-moving story, uh, particularly here in Britain. But uh, but essentially, um, this long rumbling uh, scandal over the uh, something called phone hacking, where it essentially it's breaking into the voicemail boxes of the mobile phones of uh, of various celebrities and and uh, politicians and and other people as well. Um, this is something that um, a couple of journalists who worked for the News of the World, um, a British tabloid. Um, that was, in fact, until uh, it was shut down on Sunday, the biggest-selling newspaper in Britain, and by some measures, the biggest-selling English-language newspaper in the world. Um, a couple of journalists who worked for that paper were convicted f- uh, for breaking into the voice boxes of members of the royal family. And at the time, people thought that was, you know, maybe that was all there was to it. Um, but it, the story hasn't gone away. And there have been subsequent uh, revelations that suggest that this was, in fact, far more widespread, uh, that as many as 4,000 people may have had their voicemail boxes tampered with. And it may have been a sort of pervasive part of the of the culture uh, at News of the World. And so there's this huge scandal that's embroiling uh, the parent company of News of the World, which is News International, a division of Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation, um, and he took this extraordinary decision to shut down the news of the world in an effort to um, really you know, stop the, uh, the cancer spreading to other parts of his organization. And the reason he wants to do that is that if you look at News Corporation as a, as a company, and obviously it has interest in the U.S., including Fox, um, and it also owns uh, the Wall Street Journal, and it owns um, papers in Britain, it owns papers in Australia, uh, and it owns a large but not all of um, a British satellite broadcaster called B-Sky-B. Um, if you actually look at the sums of how much money it makes and where the profits come from, essentially um, News Corp is a TV uh, organization. It mainly, it's mainly in pay TV, and it sort of does newspapers as a hobby. They're only marginally profitable, and most of them lose money. Um, and uh, what Murdoch was really trying to do here, he was, he was trying to protect his ability to take over the 60% of B-Sky-B in Britain that he didn't own already. Uh, now, why would he want to take over you know, a satellite broadcaster uh, in a small island off the west coast of Eurasia? Well, the answer is that it's incredibly profitable. B-Sky-B is expected to make over a billion pounds, so $1.6 billion this year in profit. Um, And, you know, Fox News is pretty profitable. It's it's thought to have made about $800 million last year. Um, But B-Sky-B would be an even greater prize. And so Rupert Murdoch was quite prepared to sacrifice a newspaper that really doesn't make much money at all um, in order to uh, achieve the greater goal of um, winning control of this very, very profitable pay TV company. But today, the story has has moved on even further. Um, MPs were about to have a debate in the House of Commons, uh, in which there was pretty obviously going to be a vote in which nearly everyone was going to vote against this, um, uh, this takeover. Now, the, the MPs don't actually have the power to stop it. Uh, that rests with the uh, Competition Commission, to whom the deal has just been referred, but it would be very difficult for Rupert Murdoch to go ahead and do this if it was clear that there was such opposition to the deal. Um, and so rather than be humiliated by the, uh, uh, the politicians of Great Britain, um, he has withdrawn um, the attempt to take over B-Sky-B. Now that doesn't mean he won't come back and try and do it in you know, a few years' time when all this has died down, but um, uh, this has really scuppered his, uh, his... What for him was the real... Uh, prize here which was taking over B Sky B and so this this scandal is is bad enough already but it's had this much worse knock-on effect for him that it has damaged his business strategy far more broadly and people are now talking about whether there will be knock-on effects in America. Will the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act be brought into play? Because it seems that some news international executives have admitted in Britain that journalists at um, one of the British newspapers paid policemen for stories, and that would be a violation of the FCPA, potentially. Um, so there is all sorts of um, uh, you know, ways in which this is going to grow and grow. There are going to be uh, government inquiries in Britain which, at which more revelations will no doubt emerge. Uh, so this story looks like it's going to run and run for months and months, and though no, that's, that's uh, both an interesting story for uh, other journalists to follow, and, uh, often with a, quite a dose of for uh in the case of some of the newspapers, um, but it's also uh, very difficult to stay on top of the developments because it's all moving so quickly. And th- that's why the, um, the Internet ecosystem has been so great. The best place to follow this story has actually been on Twitter.
0: Well, I saw this morning that Jay Rockefeller, U.S. Senator, has suggested that maybe there needs to be inquiry in the United States and also in Australia where, of course, Uh, Murdoch owns uh, a a majority of the newspapers Uh, there may also be uh, um, an investigation so it looks like the story is going to have some legs as you say for several months how is is anyone else at the highest levels in his organizations uh, such as I believe his son or daughter are they have they been embroiled yet in any of this? Well,
1: so far, um, the Murdochs haven't become directly involved. So um, the woman who is at the center of all of this at the moment is Rebecca Brooks, and she is currently the the CEO of News International, the the British arm of the Murdoch uh, newspaper business. Um, and she was previously the editor of the News of the World and in fact she was the editor while some of this hacking is alleged to have been going on and so um, that then raises the question, did she know about it uh, and if she did, you know, that makes her, that embroils her in this straight away. If she didn't, then she really ought to have done because this is where the newspaper seemed to have been getting an awful lot of its stories. So um, she doesn't come out of this looking good either way um, and then her, um, uh, her successor is News of the World editor, um, who subsequently went on to uh, work in, uh, in Downing Street as the, um, as the press secretary for the prime minister. Um, he has, uh, is, is looking very bad in all of this as well because there was clearly phone hacking going on on his watch, and that is embroiling the prime minister in a political scandal because this calls into question the prime minister's judgment. Other journalists on other papers say that as he tried to appoint this former journalist as his press uh, spokesman uh, that uh, uh, this was a bad move because they said, "Look, there are all these all these rumours flying around that he knew about things." And um, and uh, Mr. Cameron's defence has been that you know he uh, he was given reassurances about this, and if they turn out to have been untrue, then you know he'll be very angry. But um, it does really bring his his own judgement into question as well. So uh, as I say, yes, there are lots of ways in which this story can metastasise, and we don't know whether it will um, also turn out that other newspapers in Britain were doing the same sort of Thing. Uh, I mean, the actual technology of breaking into the voicemail boxes was extremely simple. All you did was ring up the victim while they were, and then pretend it was a wrong number. While they were on the phone, ring the number again from a different phone, which would drop you into their voicemail, and then push 1111, which was the default voicemail password on most of the British networks. That's now all been changed. You have to set your password up properly and so forth. But it was incredibly easy to do this. So um, if the other papers felt that they were being outcompeted by the news of the world, they may have been tempted to break the law as well. And I suspect that the the inquiry will reveal um, further skeletons in the cupboards of other newspapers. So there
0: really are a lot of ways in which this story can still develop. It's a good reminder to be more careful with our passwords, isn't it? You know, I was reading in uh, this week's edition of of the Economist this this quote, and I wonder if you might give us a, a better sense of the differences between the United State the media in the United States and the UK. Uh, this quote is: Whereas in America journalism is a respectable, even venerated profession, in Britain it has always been regarded as grubby. Um, how do you see that? Yes, I think that's true. I think, I mean, I don't think anyone
1: at the Economist has has um, has actually studied journalism. Uh, and in fact, it's, it seems to be a it seems to sort of get in your way if you have in Britain because it suggests um, that you well the, the suspicion is always that you studied that instead of studying something more difficult. Um, so you know a lot of the people here at the Economist uh, studied. I mean, I did engineering, but a lot of them studied um, PPE, so politics, philosophy, and economics. Or they studied history, um, or they studied politics, or, or whatever. Um, and journalism is not. Um, Seen as a noble calling as a profession uh, in britain it 's seen as a craft, um, and I think we are um, we sort of assume the worst of our journalists, I have to say uh, and uh, and with good reason, um, given the events of the of the past few days but I, I suppose the point is that the British public and members of the press um, don 't really have any um, uh, they're not under any illusions about the uh, the idea that this is a sort of noble calling. Whereas what happened in America, particularly in the 1920s, was that there was a professionalization of journalism um, in which there were very deliberate efforts to... Uh, put it on a not quite scientific footing, but to sort of, um, you know, to, to say, well, this is something that in the same way that a, a lawyer or a, a, or a doctor is, in, is trying to, uh, you know, uh, interrogate the world and, and get to the truth, that's what a journalist is doing too, um, and to professionalize it. And so, you know, in America, journalists are much more likely to have studied journalism uh, at post-grad level, um, and they're much more likely to take this seriously as a, as a profession that has ethics and, and, uh, and codes of practice and and so on. And in Britain, I have to say, you know, you suggest this to journalists, they'll just sort of roll their eyes and say, no, we're really, you know, in many ways, a lot of what the journalism profession is producing is part of the entertainment business. Um, now, I have to say that here I am sitting at a, one of the more respected, more respected British publications. Um, I think that's how we would view a lot of the other journalism that goes on. But um, but I don't think we would. um we would describe our own journalism as grubby we are you know obviously interested in, in the facts uh, and, the, and the truth and, and so forth and we are a news organization that's doing well in the current environment which suggests that people do value what we produce and our circulation continues to go up so um, i wouldn't want to tar all of us with the same brush but i but i think the main point is that um uh, for better or worse um british the british have lower expectations of their of their journalists um and so that may mean that um that i mean one of the, one of the suggestions that's going around at the moment is that actually the biggest story for last week, for most people in this country, is the news that gas and electricity prices are going to go up quite dramatically. Um, and all of this um, you know, political media uh, scandal that's erupting is of great interest to people in the political and media elites, but, um, but maybe isn't uh, that exciting to, to the rest of the, of the population, um, because they just assume that you know, journalists and, and politicians are probably up to no
0: good anyway. Well, of course, in the United States, the major story, unfortunately, was the Casey Anthony trial. Uh, let's go to our first challenge question, and uh, uh, it is, A powerful force in today's new media, the blogosphere, was given its name by this social networking pioneer who died in January 2010 at the age of 41. Was it Brad Graham, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Jarvis, or Tony Pierce? Uh be the first person to answer that question correctly, and we'd like to give you a history of the world in six classes. Tom, tell us about that book let's take a minute and just talk about that.
1: Yes, that's a totally unrelated um although actually there is a funnily enough the coffee house the idea of the coffee house internet um comes comes from that book um so uh, the book divides history into six periods, and instead of having a Stone Age and a, a Bronze Age and an Iron Age, I say let's look at history as the Beer Age followed by the Wine Age and so on. So you get, um, you get beer in, in the Stone Age and in, in the ancient civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia. You, uh, wine is the dominant drink during the Greco-Roman period. Uh, the Age of Exploration, where Europeans first you know, crossed the Atlantic and uh, and, uh head out to sea uh, was an era dominated by spirits because they were a compact form of alcohol you could take on board a ship that wouldn't perish. Um, then the, uh, the age of coffee uh, is the, began in the 17th century coffee is brought in from the Middle East as an exotic new drink but for the first time it means that people are not drinking alcohol all day and so Europe sobers up and what do you get? You get things like um, you know, the, the, uh, the scientific revolution and the French revolution and the American revolution uh, which is connected to rum and tea as you will be aware and then tea is the, uh, the fifth drink uh, the drink of the British Empire of, of, of British dominion um, and then the last drink of course is associated with the rise of America and globalization it has to be Coca-Cola so I divide history up into six uh, chunks like that and then looking forward I think the drink of the future is water I mean I wrote this book six years ago and that was the point where the bottled water mania was just getting going and I I, I thought it was a rather silly thing and I, I still do and I'm very glad to see there's been a backlash against bottle, of bottled water since then which I did my bit to get started with a, an op-ed in the New York Times. Um, but anyway yes uh, one of the sections is about the coffee house internet and the idea that in, uh, in London for example in the 1670s uh, if you wanted the news on a particular subject you had to choose the right coffee house and you would go to that place and all the people interested in that subject would be in that coffee house uh, and you could go and hear the news and people used to get their mail in coffee houses before there was street numbering uh, and it was the best place to go and and find things. So it was very much like um, having bookmarks for lots of different blogs. You would visit lots of coffee houses and see what people were saying and hear the latest gossip and rumors and, and so forth. So there is actually a connection. Uh, that's a, uh, one of the germs of the idea of, um, uh, of, the, of the back to the coffee house cover in The Economist.
0: Well, as I mentioned, I have a very long flight later this week, and I ordered your book uh, on my my Kindle, and I look forward to reading it over the weekend. You can purchase it uh, on Amazon uh, for $8, so I encourage our listeners, if you'd like to read more about a history of the world in six classes, to go there right away. Let me just repeat that challenge question. A powerful force in today's new media, the blogosphere, was given its name by this social networking pioneer who died in 2010. Was it Brad Graham, Jeff Jarvis, or Tony Pierce? We have a question from Fred. He says, what effect will Facebook, Twitter, and other social media outlets have on traditional legacy media, such as newspapers, magazines, periodicals, et cetera? We keep hearing in the press that these new media outlets do not have the investigative staff or infrastructure to perform quality journalism. As he says, are we moving from the adult table to the children's table in regards to media content and quality? Um, well, that's a very good question. I don't think it's a case
1: of either or. So I don't think we're going to like replace newspapers with Facebook and Twitter. Um, what instead is happening is that uh, social media is being used in three quite distinct ways by existing news organizations to produce better journalism. Uh, so the first is that they are using um, Facebook and Twitter to to gather more information. Um, you know, you could go out now and look for uh, For videos, Um, this is what Al Jazeera, the BBC, CNN, they're all doing it. Um, If you want videos from Syria at the moment, uh, you know, there aren't really any journalists in Syria at the moment, and it's very difficult to, to get any images out there. But we are seeing footage of what's going on in Syria because it's being posted onto YouTube or onto Facebook um, by people who are filming it with mobile phones. So that's the sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's providing a lot more sources. Similarly with Twitter, um, you can sort of go out and say uh, on, on Twitter, if you cultivate contacts in the right parts of the world, you can use them as sources. You can use them to verify things. You can say, we've heard that this is happening. Is that the case? Uh, we've been sent this picture of a protest in this city. Is it really happening or is it a picture from last week? Um, so it's it, uh, the first thing it 's doing is providing um, an enormous new set of sources Now they have to be treated very carefully and they have to you know you have to verify them and most news organizations have a story about how they got something horribly wrong, and that then um, taught them how to deal with this but uh, I mean the BBC actually publishes its guidelines for how it verifies um, content from social networks and user generated content uh, and they've they 've been doing this for a couple of years and they 're getting quite good at it now in fact, I heard an amazing story. Um, from, from uh, uh, one of the people I spoke to about a woman who was shown a picture of the back of a truck and a camel um, and you really couldn't see very much else at all in the picture and sort of uh, a bit of desert and she was able to identify what country it was from the license plate on the truck uh, what time of day it was, which road it was, which direction the truck was going in um, and so uh, you know, there were people who were very, very good at piecing together these clues and uh, they used these exact skills to verify the information from social media. So I think that's a great thing and we saw with the Japanese tsunami uh, with the Arab Spring with the tornadoes recently in, in, uh, in the Midwest that um, uh, this is you know, a great new source of information so that's the first thing uh, the second thing that uh, uh, news organizations are doing is they're using social media to engage with, uh, with readers more directly um, and there are various ways you can do that uh, but probably the most striking is where you have these sort of crowdsourcing operations so a recent example was Sarah Palin's emails which were released and um, several news organizations put them up in a way that their readers could help them go through these thousands of documents very quickly and uh, find anything of interest there wasn't really anything of interest it turned out but um, uh, this idea that you can uh, ask your readers to help you, it allows you to do things that you couldn't have done as a as a news organization before. Um, and uh, again, as with the first example, um, this is a form of collaboration between professional journalists and um, amateurs. And whether they're journalists or not, well, really, it, you know, I don't think we need to get too hung up on the definition of a journalist. A journalist is someone who commits journalism. And uh, actually, I don't think you need a qualification or letters after your name to do that. I think if you adhere to the you know basic values of, of uh, you know, fairness and accuracy and so forth then, uh, then that's fine. So you can have a, um, a, a large group of people uh, consisting of both professionals and amateurs uh, committing journalism together um, and then the third example of how uh, social media is being used by news organizations involves distribution uh, and this is where uh, this is probably the thing that readers are most familiar with but if you go to the homepage of a lot of newspapers now you, or, or, uh, you know, or of, uh, of CNN you will see uh, most popular, most commented, most shared Um, and what's popular, uh, what readers actually like is influencing what's on those front pages. And of course, by sharing things um, across social networks, uh, readers are actually having an enormous influence over what people, what their friends read. Um, And uh, the proportion of traffic to news sites that comes from social media is going up and up. It's the fastest growing um, source of traffic. In our case, it grew by something like 600% year on year. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, And this is because... um, Collectively, lots of individuals sharing stuff can act like a, like a sort of distributed broadcaster. Um, and, uh, and you see this, that when, a, when an obscure newspaper or an obscure blog comes up with an interesting piece of news, it can ripple through Twitter and through Facebook, and, and uh, millions of people can see it. I mean, one of those videos of the, uh, of the earthquake in Japan, uh, taken by a very scared Japanese man using his iPhone in his apartment, you can see everything shaking, and it's been, it's been viewed 10 million times on YouTube. Uh, and that's you know that's how many viewers he would have got if it had been on uh, you know on the nightly news or something like that. I mean it's it's an amazing. Um, uh ability to distribute things in a, in a viral and social fashion. So the the key element of all of these things is that there is actually collaboration going on between um, uh, professionals and amateurs. And I think the, the crucial thing for newspapers like The Economist and, and, and everyone else and for TV stations is to actually embrace this. Uh, for many years, the new media um, in their original form of blogs uh, were seen as the enemy. And we had this sort of bloggers versus the mainstream media uh, narrative going on um, and in fact, uh, attitudes are changing. And people are now seeing that um, the, this is something that strengthens journalism if it's used in the right way. Um, so it, it's really a matter, I think, for news organizations to, to work out what the right way for them to do this is to engage with their readers, with their audience, and produce better journalism. Uh, and I think the newspapers and uh, news organizations that do that will have a much better shot at surviving um, than the ones that don't and say, no, this is all terrible, and I wish it would go away.
0: One of the things that you talked about quite a bit in in the report was that Al Jazeera was really just beginning to learn about how to incorporate social media into its reporting and training its uh, reporters uh, with Facebook and so forth. And and now it's uh, uh, considered one of the major contributors to the Arab Spring.
1: Yes. So um, their timing was very good. What happened was that there was a there was this uh, war called the Gaza War, which happened um, right at the end of 2008 to to the beginning of 2009. And during that conflict, um, several of the of the more switched on people at Al Jazeera realised that um, a lot of the discussion of of what was going on was taking place. Uh, on the internet and they realized that um, the old model where a satellite broadcaster in the Arab world you know, broadcasts to a TV set that's in the corner of a, of a coffee shop or a tea room and the, the men are all sitting around watching it and discussing it there they realized that part of that discussion for the younger people in particular was moving online and they needed to move online as well and so they instituted this big um, sort of social media push and this culminated in the training of all the people in all their newsrooms uh, I think it was last November or December um, uh, to, to sort of get them used to this, to say, look, we're going to have a desk over here which monitors social media, which um, encourages people to send stuff in, uh, which verifies it and which then passes it over to the main news desk so that it can be used in uh, in RTV broadcasts that can be published online and so on. And um, and they just put all of that in place when the Arab Spring kicked off. And, um, of course, the Arab Spring began in Tunisia with the uh, the fruit seller who set himself on fire because his... His stand had been confiscated by police. And, uh, you know, all he was doing was trying to make a living. There were no jobs available. um, And uh, he was so angry that he set himself on fire and later died of his injuries. But this prompted um, many uh, protests. And one of these protests, it was a silent protest outside uh, a government building in the town where he lived. Um, And it was led by his mother. And that was filmed by somebody on a mobile phone. And that video was posted on Facebook. And Al Jazeera found that. And uh, they rebroadcast it. And so, again, it's this collaboration. They took the amateur footage, they verified it, and then they broadcast it to millions of people across the Arab world. Um, and at the time, you know, the Tunisian the government uh, was, was preventing anything from getting out. But, um, and they you know, they were trying to block the internet and and block Facebook and so on. Uh, But this stuff managed to get out anyway. um, And that had an amazing uh, catalyzing effect, uh, particularly in Egypt, where people said, hang on a minute, the the Tunisians, we're we're meant to be having the revolution around here, not not them. Um, And uh, and so this sort of emboldened protest movements uh, across the the Middle East, which we now know of as the Arab Spring. Um, But uh, I think the role of the media, i mean, uh, you know, no one is really saying this is a Twitter revolution. And uh, there are lots of people saying, it's not. Um, but, uh, but actually, the reality is much more uh, subtle than that. Um, I think it was Jared Cohen of Google who put this best. He said that social media is an accelerant, it's like the um, you know, the twigs uh, and, and the brush on the on the floor of a forest, if there's a forest fire, it makes the fire travel much faster and burn much hotter, but it doesn't actually cause it to start. And the same is true with a revolution. When you're going to have a revolution, um, you're going to use whatever tools are to hand. And today that means social media, and they can really help you, um, you know, make things happen uh, more quickly and more easily. But to say this has been caused by that, I think would be very, very wrong. There are lots and lots of causes um, here, But the striking thing was the way that it was able to spread more quickly because of this hybrid of uh, the satellite uh, media, you know, existing professional um, incumbent media of, of Al Jazeera combined with the new social media. Uh,
0: I want to congratulate Fred. Uh, he uh, got the right answer. The uh, Brad Graham was the force in today's new media who invented the name uh, Blogosphere. Brad Graham. Thank you very much, Fred, and you'll be receiving a copy of A History of the World in in, in Six Glasses. Um, One of of the things that really came out in your report, too, is despite the demise of so many U.S. newspapers, and and especially the dailies in large cities, actually the health of the newspaper business in a number of countries, particularly in India and South Africa and others, is is very healthy. What's the the reason for uh, for for these differences?
1: Uh, Well, essentially that you don't have um, the Internet in those countries yet. Um, so, globally, uh, newspaper, newspaper circulation seems to have gone up by 6% between 2005 and 2009. Now, that said, um, it dipped very, very slightly between 2008 and 2009, and that was probably because of the um, financial crisis. But it's possible that we've actually seen the peak of world newspaper um, sales now. Um, but anyway, uh, yes, if you look in, in uh, emerging markets, so India is the best example, India uh, the newspaper sales have uh, have paid daily newspapers in India, grew by 40% between 2005 and 2009. Um, And the growth in China was 10%, in Brazil was 20%, uh, and so on. So there is very fast growth in these countries where you have a growing middle class, you have growing literacy, and because people are becoming wealthier, um, and and very often they're becoming wealthier because of globalization, they have a much greater interest in politics, they have a much greater interest in what's going on in the world because it's affecting their lives. Um, And so all of those things uh, encourage them to become... uh, newspaper readers and to consume more news. And that's just, I mean, I'm using newspapers there as a proxy for enthusiasm for news more generally, but there are other examples as well. In, in India, um, uh, about 500 satellite channels have been launched in the last 20 years since satellite broadcasting first became popular. 81 of them are news channels. Um, uh, now, a lot of them are broadcasting sort of Bollywood celebrity news, it has to be said. Um, but uh, but there is a, an enormous appetite for, for news. So. Um, that said, uh, this is very much growth in countries where Internet penetration is still quite low. And I think the country that's really worth watching here is Brazil. Um, I mean, China is, is still growing there, but China you know, a, is, a, is an unusual case because you don't have a free press and you have a very restricted Internet. What I think is interesting about Brazil is that uh, Internet penetration is, is ticking up. It's up to about a quarter of households now, I think, and an awful lot of those are broadband households. And uh, the growth in newspaper sales has come screeching to a halt in the past couple of years. Now, it could be the financial crisis again, but it could be that we are seeing – Brazil tipping over into a developed world model where newspaper circulation appears to go into inexorable decline um, and, uh, and people say you know actually I'm going to go and uh, surf the news on the internet and uh, advertisers uh, switch away from uh, print advertising and say why should I pay so much for print ads when I can reach, you know, I can reach people in a more targeted and cheaper way online um, so the point is I suppose that uh, um, uh, we hear a lot of doom and gloom in America in particular because it has this unusual dependency on advertising um, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and in fact, news- American newspapers are the worst hit. They've had the most layoffs. Uh, they, had, they had really um, grown the fattest on the local news monopoly revenues that they built up uh, towards the end of the 20th century. Uh, so they had further to fall as well. So my point is that the picture is really quite diverse. It's, it's bad news in America in much of the developing world. It, it's, it's very good news. Uh, in other parts of the developed world, the decline is, um, not as, uh, as fast as in America. So, you know, it looks more likely that say newspapers in Germany will be able to um, navigate the transition to a digital world. The Scandinavian newspapers, again, have, have often been quite progressive in using the internet as well. So, um, in America, the newspapers were sort of asleep at the wheel and they, uh, they seem to have allowed these, uh, the tech firms to move in onto their patch. And so, you know, people are getting news from, from Google and Yahoo and things like that instead. Um, in some parts of Europe, uh, that didn't happen and, uh, and and the existing news organizations have been uh, able to stay very dominant on the internet probably the best example is the BBC actually which uh, is state funded has a huge amount of money to spend on this and uh, as a result has one of the most popular web
0: uh, uh, news websites in the world you know one of the things we were just back to india i was astounded when i read that there're 74,000 newspapers in india and he mentioned the 81 News Yeah, channel. and they
1: sell 110 million copies a day. I mean, that's, you know, 110 million newspapers a day. Isn't that amazing? Um, so, yes, it is. Now, that said, I was talking to a, a, a journalist in India, and he said, well, yeah, you have to be careful with these figures, because his mother, um, who can who can read but not brilliantly. Um, she, uh, she apparently uh, subscribes to newspapers because she can get more money recycling the paper than it costs her to subscribe to them. So the papers are actually being sold at a loss. And this is because, as in America, Indian newspapers are very, very heavily dependent on advertising revenue. Uh, you've got booming, booming companies there who want to reach the, the booming middle class. And they want to sell them cars and, and household appliances and, and mobile phones. And so they are able to you know throw a lot of money at advertising. And that that is encouraging newspapers to uh, to cut their prices to reach the broadest possible audience. This is exactly what happened in America, but it's all just happening much more quickly. So, um, so uh, in fact, one of the responses to my special report was an analysis of all of this from an Indian uh, uh, writer who said, you know, the Indian news industry could actually fall off a cliff much more quickly than than we think uh, because it's so dependent on on advertising. But for the time being, you know, it's it's strong growth and lots of
0: readers and uh, and so forth. And if you say dependent on advertising and also on literacy, uh, one of the things that I I read either in your special report or somewhere else is that reading a newspaper is a sign of education, but as broadband becomes uh, more prevalent, uh, people may just, like in the United States, depend more on the Internet for accessing their news.
1: Yes, that's right. So at the moment, you know, it's a status symbol to be able to read a newspaper on the train because you're saying, look, I'm educated. I'm, you know, I'm I'm going up in the world. Um, and the literacy rate is, you know, is ticking up in India. And uh, and so that won't that won't continue to be the case indefinitely. But, um, you know, certainly parents are very proud of having children that can read newspapers and
0: taking out a subscription to a newspaper is a sort of middle class totem. You know, I'm always struck by just how little we know about China. And in your report, you mentioned that China does not allow cross-regional reporting. I was not aware of that. What else might surprise us about how the media operates in China? And I think you also touched on uh, how microblogging is now used to uh, skirt around some of the controls placed on the media.
1: Yes, I think from the outside, it's very easy to assume that um, because the state dominates so many areas of uh, of, of life and business in China, that uh, that all of the media in China is sort of state controlled and power the party line. And that's not true at all. Um, Journalists in China are, are trying to do um, you know, what journalists do elsewhere. They're trying to hold power to account and so on. But they're trying to do so under much more difficult circumstances because there are all sorts of limits on what they can do and what they can say. And uh, as one of the people I quote in the report puts it, um, newspapers have to dance between the party line and the bottom line. Um, if they just relentlessly um, say whatever the the party line is on things and and, uh, uh, and so forth, then readers won 't respect them uh, If they occasionally expose corruption somewhere then they 're much more likely to be taken seriously, and that translates into commercial um, benefits so the game in China involves working out. Um, who you can afford to expose, who you can afford to offend. It means, weirdly, cultivating um, contacts within, uh, you know, the local uh, party and within, uh, within officialdom generally um, so that you have um, enough cover when, when you expose somebody. Um, and, uh, and so that it's a very much more complicated game, that you need to kind of have the political um, uh, coverage to, um, uh, to do things. And when you do expose somebody, you have to make sure that, that, you know, essentially, that somebody else somewhere uh, approves of you doing this. Uh, it's very, very hard to get a get a picture of this for for outsiders. But yes, microblogging is an interesting uh, uh, development here because um, the the dominant uh, microblogging service, which uh, interestingly a growing number of people are signing up for in English, um, is called Sina Weibo, and uh, it's essentially a clone of Twitter. But the way the Chinese language works, um, when you translate a Uh, 140 character Chinese um, tweet into English, you get about three paragraphs because you can say so much with you know. You've obviously got an enormous number of characters in the Chinese um, alphabet, so you've got a you've got a very different um, uh, you know. You've got the ability, in effect, to compress much more information into one of these messages. Um, And so, what some journalists have taken to doing is writing a you know the most daring article they can in print, but then actually spilling the beans online anonymously. Um, And one of the things about uh, using these services is they 're much harder to censor because uh, if you if you dribble the information out in a series of microblog messages uh, it only really makes sense if you 've been reading them all in order, and that makes the life life much harder for the censor so there is an extraordinary game of cat and mouse going on here um because you know this is a giant industry that with with, with um almost as many uh, it 's hundred and ten um million, uh, here we are, it's 109 million um, newspapers sold a day in China versus 110 in in India. So it is huge. Um, And uh, there are people trying to commit journalism, as we would understand it, in the West, but they're doing so
0: under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. That's certainly something to continue to follow. Before we get to Wayne's question, let me do the second challenge question. And this is to win a subscription to The Economist, either a new subscription or to renew your current subscription, I hope. In 2010, this cable news commentator was the top ratings earner for his evening program and ranked number eight for total viewership for the nightly rerun of his show as well. Was it Anderson Cooper, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, or Wolf Blitzer? Uh, Please be the first to answer this question and you'll receive a subscription to The Economist. Wayne asks, and I think you've touched on this a little bit, Tom, but let's go and be a little bit more specific. Will social media play a role in global economic recovery? If so, what, when, and how?
1: Um, I think that's probably asking a bit much of um, of social media, I have to say. I think social media will be very important for businesses. It already is in many ways. And um, just as some news organizations are sort of putting their heads in the sand and hoping it will go away, um, I think a lot of companies are, uh, are doing the same as well. And that's a mistake. This is here to stay. It's a very big and important shift. Um, and it does sort of, I like to say social media is sort of a solvent between, it, it, it dissolves the boundaries that exist uh, inside a lot of organizations. Um, and, uh, you know, when does PR, uh, it dissolves the difference between PR and, and, uh, and marketing and, uh, and other activities. So, you know, the HR department uh, trying to reach out to potential recruits using blogging, well, that's social media, but it's also kind of CSR and it's also kind of um, uh, marketing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very, very disruptive. So I think businesses need to take it seriously, but I don't think it's something that um, you know that, that really drives economic growth in particular. Um, so I think it, it's here to stay, and it will be part of what businesses do in the future. But um, but I, I think there
0: are much more important factors when it comes to reviving growth. Uh, we're seeing now news organizations, particularly newspapers, experiment with different models. The Dallas Morning News, in my hometown, has joined a handful of papers by implementing a, a paywall. Um, We've seen metered uh, metered, uh, access, such as with the Financial Times, and I believe, as as, as well, The Economist. Uh, How do you view these different uh, models, and do we have any idea yet what's working best? Um,
1: Well, I think paywalls are popping up all over the place, and I think we're going to see more of them. Um, Paywalls appeared to have been discredited a decade ago, because the original paywall model was that everything was inside the paywall or outside it, and that was it. Um, And... So, there was a sort of all or nothing approach, and what we 're seeing now increasingly is much more subtle um, use of paywalls because news organizations recognize that um, actually to let people access a little bit of content is a good thing uh, if you, you know a story can 't go viral on Facebook or on Twitter um, if people clicking on the link can 't see it um, and so a far more sophisticated approach to paywalls is emerging. Uh, my favorite example is, the, is a newspaper in West Pennsylvania where they um, they set it up so that if you read the obituaries from out of state and you read more than five of them, then the paywall popped up. And this is because they had a lot of people from that part of the world retiring to Florida who then were reading the um, uh, the obits in that, in that newspaper online uh, as their acquaintances died back home. And uh, of course, the newspaper couldn't sell them print copies because they were far away in Florida. So it said, "Well, we want to monetize these people." Now, I don't know whether that model will work, but the point is that the technology exists now to be far more um, subtle to, to vary the rules for the paywall depending on who's visiting, what country they're visiting from, what time of year it is, uh, you know, whether you have excess um, ad inventory in that particular country or that particular place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I expect to see more of this, and I, I expect some of it to work. The New York Times paywall, which is a metered paywall, so you. I think you get 30 stories a month, um, has been more successful than they thought. They've had more people sign up um, for the New York Times in digital form than they expected to. Uh, And I think a lot of people recognize that this is reasonable. They want the – in the same way that they give money to NPR, perhaps, they say, well, the New York Times is something I want to survive. And, uh, you know, I feel I should pay for it. And now you're asking me to pay? Okay, I will. Um, And so – I'm, I'm optimistic that there will be models that will enable some news organisations to derive significant amounts of revenue from from uh, online digital subscriptions. Now that said, there's no single model that works for all news organisations so some of them are going for scale, so the Guardian in Britain now has as many readers almost in America as it does in Britain um, it has more readers outside Britain than it does within Britain, so two thirds of its readers so it's big enough now, it's the fifth biggest newspaper website in the world, that it can potentially try and fund its news gathering operations from advertising. It will have to probably reduce its newsroom to do that, um, but it's it's possible that that model can work for them. The the mail online is trying to do a similar thing, um, so the, you know there are it's it's possible that there'll be other uh, models. In fact, I expect there to be a multiplicity of models. Another thing that's that's, that's happening is that in in the old days uh, newspapers would ex, it was assume that money came from advertisers or from readers. There are actually lots and lots of other places it can come from now. So we we see the philanthropic um, model where some of it comes from. Uh, from philanthropy, but we also see things like newspapers starting wine clubs cruises dating services the Guardian gets a third of its online revenue from dating services There's a very successful um, Slimming program that was invented by a Swedish newspaper. It's licensed it to many other newspapers including I think Die site in in Germany um, So newspapers are looking at new forms of revenue in many many uh, Many ways and essentially this is what happened to the music industry as well the music industry uh found that, you know, everything was being pirated and, in a sense, given away for free online. And it's responded with a range of of new models. There's no single model that works. There's a, you know, the... the, uh, the next big thing is lots of big things, as it were. The industry overall shrank, but but um, it, you know, essentially it's, it's shrinking but becoming profitable again, and that's what I expect to happen with uh, with news as well. Uh, I don't think that um, all news organisations will survive, but I think there's going to be more consolidation in newspapers in America. Um, but the survivors will will find models that work, and you know, I expect the New York Times to be to be
0: one of them, and I expect its model to work. You know, one of the things I've been noticing with the Fort Worth Star Telegram. Uh, Every day I receive uh, uh, an advertisement or a coupon, almost like Groupon. And then, of course, The Economist has his conferences. New York Times has uh, lots of special events, and they're – Always, you know, are sending out advertisements her photos and, and so forth. So as you said, everyone's looking for for different ways. I want to congratulate uh, Rachel. She uh, got the answer for the challenge question. The answer was Bill O'Reilly in 2010. Bill O'Reilly was the top ratings earner for his show and ranked number eight for total viewership. Uh, congratulations, Rachel. You will receive uh, hopefully an extension to your Economist subscription. One of the things that we noticed last year was that online advertising revenue um, increased and for the first time it surpassed spending on print advertising, but the point was most of it was not on news sites. Um, you think that you know eventually there, there will be uh, more profitability on the w- w- websites for, for news or is it an issue of that there are just so many millions of pages, it's very hard to assign the, the same value that you can assign to, uh, to a newspaper?
1: yes well there are there are conflicting theories about this um I have to say, I'm with Clay Shirky, whose analysis suggests i mean what what he says is you know the old old saw about advertising that advertiser an advertiser wastes half of his his money, but he doesn't know which half. Well, with the internet, you do know which half. And it may be that advertising was historically just too expensive, um, that advertisers were just paying too much for it. And now that um, you can target things more effectively, that the price of advertising might just be lower. That, that might just be it. Uh, that's one of the problems. Uh, another problem is, yes, you've got billions of pages out there. So, um, you know, you, can charge a, you, could, you could charge a reasonable amount for the homepage of your news organization's website. But, um, but you know, on the article pages about obscure subjects, you know, how much can you really charge for ads on those pages? Um, So, uh, at the moment, that looks quite depressing. The CPMs seem to be going down. Um, the, the amount of inventory goes up. Uh, and most of the value here is being captured by uh, completely different organizations such as Google. Now, that said, um, Eric Schmidt came in and talked to us about this last year, and I asked him exactly this question. And he said, well, we love newspapers. You know, we, we don't want them to go away. Um, and we think in the future uh, that as a, uh, Internet advertising gets better and it becomes easier to, uh, to target and offer people uh, stuff that's, you know, relevant for them uh, that." That he thinks that the this will turn around and that potentially um, that the value that uh, the amount that newspapers can charge for uh, for advertising uh, will go up again, uh, but it requires there to be uh, you know new technology it requires consumers to be happy with this sort of targeting of advertising, which i 'm not sure they will be to be honest, but that 's their sort of you know i mean you would expect Google to say that because they are currently you know regarded as a villain by much of the mu- of the news industry for for sort of um, uh, Free riding on their on their stories and for diverting most of the advertising online into their own pockets. Um, but there you go. That's his that's his position. And I wouldn't you know I wouldn't rule it out completely that uh, more sophisticated forms of very very targeted advertising uh, might actually be something that advertisers are prepared to pay more for. And news organisations you know will know quite a lot about what their what their readers are interested in by the nature of what they do. So. Um, So I wouldn't wouldn't rule it out, but I have to say I think the the main problem that the industry has had is that since 1833 and the New York Sun, uh, it became too dependent on advertising revenue. And I think historically we are going to shift back towards readers picking up more of the bill. Um, So uh, that's where the paywalls come in uh, uh, and so forth. And um, and you know I I quite like that and and you you see that uh, uh, readers are you know in in some cases prepared to pay for adverts to go away on a website <laughs> um, and uh, you know you, you get these premium uh, services on the internet where the free service has ads but as soon as you pay for the service the ads go away so that's sort of acknowledging that yes you need the ads to support it but also the ads are kind of annoying and some people might might want them to go um, so I think the jury the jury's still out but uh, but
0: in the long run um, readers are going to have to pick up more of the bill. Tom, I can't resist reading this quote from Thomas Jefferson. Advertisements contain the only truth to be relied on in a newspaper.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, uh, he may have been uh, commenting on the nature of newspapers in his day, uh, which were uh, nakedly partisan and um, uh, very scurrilous. And, in fact, people would say the same about... um, about the sort of rumors you read on Twitter now. You know, surely we can't trust any of this stuff. Um, I think uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting comment that somebody made, we have an online debate going on at the moment on our website about whether the Internet makes journalism better or worse. One of, the, one of the commenters made a point which I've long advocated, which is that actually in the Internet age, one of the first things you have to learn is the ability to tell, you know, truth from fiction. Um, the, to use the Internet at all, you really need to develop those antennae to... to, to you know, how, how trustworthy is this and so on? Because, you know, when you receive an email that, uh, that, that claims to be from your bank or whatever, you have to be quite skeptical. Um, and this, this uh, commenter was suggesting that in the past, um, you know, uh, people reading newspapers were more inclined to believe whatever they said and that um, that was sort of dangerous and that actually uh, uh, having this sort of untrustworthiness um, forces us to be on our guard,
0: forces us to hold our news organizations to account. That's a good segue to what will be our last question from Larry. What is the danger of not just an uninformed public, but a public that doesn't understand who is providing the information and how valid that information may be? Is there a way to remind America that for the nation to survive with its freedoms intact, it must have an honest, trustworthy, strong, and free press?
1: Well, I think what this comes down to is transparency. So um, I think – Uh, as we get a larger variety of news sources, um, and some of them will be, you know, the White House and its own Twitter feed, and some of them will be individual celebrities or companies or whatever, and we're going to get um, a larger variety of news sources which are not um, holding themselves to the sort of traditional journalistic values. Um, And so we need to be asking the question, who is saying this and what's in it for them? Um, And uh, in order to evaluate that, we need to be clear uh, where a particular point of view is coming from. Uh, and so I think transparency uh, across the board is the way to do this, and, and that takes many forms. For news organisations, it means you know potentially things like publishing full transcripts of all interviews. So when someone says I was quoted out of context, you can say, well, here's the context, and here's the audio as well. We're starting to see some news organisations doing that. For governments, it means um, you know publishing data uh, in this sort of data.gov go- format, so you can see if the governor is giving fat contracts to his brother. Um, and uh, and then I think just generally the internet. May- Makes it easier for you to link back to uh, to sources of data um, to 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 other sources of information, so that when you make a claim, people are in a position to evaluate it. And if you don't link to those sources and you aren't prepared to say um, you know what the basis of your claim is, then that should raise a question mark for people. Um, and. Uh, uh, I think that's I think the the big shift that's happening here. WikiLeaks is part of this too. I mean, um, you know, Julian Assange is a campaigner for uh for transparency of a particularly sort of, you know, extreme nature. I mean, he really thinks that everything should be out there, and that's that I think going a bit far in the eyes of most sensible people. But um but ultimately there is a shift here. Um transparency was very difficult to pull off in the days of print. What were you going to do? Send, you know, a complete copy of all of the uh, you know, the the state's uh, fulfillment, uh, uh, uh procurement contracts. To everyone, well, no, that would have been insane. But you can put it on a website now, so that everyone can see it. So transparency becomes much easier in the age of the internet and the age of the hyperlink. And uh, and so I think we're going to see pressure of various kinds, both you know activist groups, the Sunlight Foundation I I refer to in my report, um, movements like Data.gov, movements like WikiLeaks. I mean that's part of this as well. And I think journalists being more open about their uh, their biases, where they're coming from, uh, you know, providing statements of interest. you know, what shareholdings they have. We see some news organizations starting to do this already. Um, and uh, I think there's going to be more and more of that, and that should make it easier for us uh, to keep ourselves informed. And it's not absolutely necessary that everybody does this and chases everything down and, you know, verifies every claim. The point is, as long as a, a small enough um, subset or a large enough subset of the population is prepared to go and, um, and, and check these sorts of things, then the fact that you might be found out will be enough. And uh, I think that's the sort of the new nature of the watchdog media. It's going to depend a lot
0: more on, um, on transparency as the basis to build trust. And as you say, we can all meet in the coffee house, and that's really what the Internet and the new ecosystem is today. Tom, thanks so much for sharing your time, especially on a day when I know you're, you and your colleagues are very busy uh, uh, chasing the Rupert Murdoch story. If you've enjoyed talking with Tom as much as I have Visit his blog at TomStandage.com to keep up with the latest in technology, the Internet, and much, much more. This October, The Economist will hold its third annual Buttonwood Gathering, a two-day conference that brings together global thought leaders and provocateurs in international finance. This year's conference takes place on October 26th and 27th in New York City. For details, go to buttonwood.economist.com. I noticed yesterday that we have already about eight people going who are listeners of our program, Uh, so if you'd like to go, please uh, contact us, and we'll be sure to get you a discounted rate. Uh, You can find out information about this on our website and of course the economist website and if by chance you're not yet a subscriber to the economist please go to economist.com to start your subscription today please visit dfwworld.org forward slash global iq to sign up for the latest updates and informations about our program including information on our august 12th audiocast. this will be very very interesting growing potential in the middle east following unrest featuring David Butter, the Economist Intelligent Unit's Regional Director of the Middle East and Africa. To find a World Affairs Council near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.